If you have your Bibles open to Malachi chapter 2. Remember, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament right before the book of Matthew in the New. Let me apologize in advance for the amount of hacking and coughing you'll probably hear this morning. Apparently, the third round of the bubonic plague is going out through Decatur, Alabama. (coughs) Malachi chapter 2. God is holy. What that means is that he is altogether separate. What that means is that he is perfectly clean. It means that there is no germ or blemish or stain or defect in him. There is no tear in his fabric. We as human beings are the opposite. We are unholy. We are unclean. We are infected with the germ of sin. And the spiritual infection of our souls stains our lives from the deepest, most hidden thoughts of our minds to the simplest outward deeds of our hands. This sin problem, this reality of our lack of holiness, it creates an issue between us and God. Because the unclean cannot come into contact with that which is clean. For the unholy to come into contact with the holy would be like a germ or a bacteria falling into a puddle of bleach or a piece of paper mache coming into contact with the surface of the sun. It would be obliterated. The only way that sinful man can approach a holy God is through something called a mediator. Somebody who stands in between the gap, the infinite gap between a holy God and a sinful man. For thousands of years, the Lord had a mediator for His people. And that mediator was called a priest. The priesthood began with Aaron, the brother of Moses, the man who led the Israelites out of Egypt. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the twelve sons of Israel. So in your Bibles, whenever you read of the priests called the Levites, or whenever you see them referred to as the Levitical priesthood, Well, that's the reason why. It's because they are descended from Aaron who is descended from Levi. And the priesthood was passed down by blood. But blood wasn't the only qualification for the priesthood. As we spent five minutes earlier reading from the book of Leviticus, holiness is also a prerequisite for the priesthood. Holiness of every kind. Today's text tells us that the priests must walk with God and peace and uprightness, which is another word for righteousness. It says that they must be people who turn away from iniquity. It's true that all of God's people are called to live this way, but the priests are meant to live this way especially so. In the same way that if you look at the qualifications for elders in the life of the church, you would look at that list of qualifications and say, well, shouldn't all Christians live like this? And the answer is yes, but especially so the elders. As at verse 7 says, the priests were at least partially the messengers of the Lord. They had a special responsibility to display a special holiness. We saw last week 
that the priests of Malachi's day were anything but holy. Rather than fearing and honoring the name of the Lord, they were despising it. They were offering up corrupt sacrifices on the altar of the Lord. They were, as Malachi says, treating His name with contempt. And today's text is really like the part two. You know, we ended last week's text with a sort of to be continued. This week's text is the part two to last week's sermon. Last week's text ended with God talking about this corrupt priesthood. He says, but it's okay. My name will be glorified no matter what. My name will be honored. My name will be feared, regardless of what you priests are doing in the temple. <coughs> Which leaves us with the question. So, so what about the priests, Lord? What do you have to say to these men who are supposed to be your messengers? These men who are supposed to be picturing holiness for the nation. What about them? Are you, are you just going to let that slide because you're going to be praised anyways? Well, let's read the Lord's answer ourselves today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so... I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. <clears throat> Today's text begins with God commanding the priests to repent. He says, okay, priests, it's your turn. And the language that he uses to describe this repentance in verse 2 is the language of listening and taking to heart. Repentance isn't merely hearing the truth. It's taking the truth and receiving it into your innermost being and then letting it permeate every aspect of your life from there. Then God tells the priest that if they don't turn from their sin and turn back to him, that he will curse them. And then almost as you would expect to hear out of the mouth of an angry parent, he says, as a matter of fact, I've already cursed you and I have cursed your blessings. Those blessings could be almost anything. It's hard to tell from the text. Whatever it is, it's bad. When animal sacrifices were offered in the temple, excrement was often part of the experience. 
and we read here in the text that God says something very offensive about that excrement, something that would have been offensive even to people of the ancient days. He says that he's going to take that excrement and rub it on the face of the priests. As priests would go about offering their sacrifices, dealing with the dung of the animals was just kind of part and parcel of the experience. You know, it's like when you go to med school to save lives, they don't tell you that half of your time is going to be spent doing paperwork. Well, in the same way, you know, if you're looking at an ad, 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 advertisement, an advertisement about being a priest, you may not see, oh, you also have to clean up excrement, but that's just part of the job. The temple is full of it, and something has to be done with it, particularly because it's unclean, and these sacrifices are taking place in a clean place, a holy place. And so the Lord in Exodus 29 commands the priest saying this, but the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn outside of the camp. Get rid of the unclean thing. But why would the Lord rub the dung of these animals on the faces of the priests? Is it just some sort of cruel punishment like a really mean, nasty, vindictive way of trying to show the priests just how bad they've messed up? Or is there something else going on here? The Old Testament is rich with symbolism. And a lot of the symbolism doesn't make sense to us at first glance. But if you dig a little deeper, you usually find that the outward symbol is intended to function as an expression of an inward reality. I think that that's true here in today's text. The Lord commands the priest to be holy. We've seen how much he cares about the holiness of the priest. He he says you must be holy. You must not be unclean. And yet the priests were unholy. They were offering up unholy sacrifices before him. Worthless sacrifices. So the Lord says, I'm going to show you. And I'm going to show everyone else just how unclean you are. I'm going to, on the outside, make it plain the reality of the inner condition of your souls. I'm going to cover you in the most unholy thing imaginable, the excrement of your worthless sacrifices. It's all too easy for us, isn't it, to carry around our unclean souls, thinking that we can hide it from the world. But the Lord tells the priests that he will not allow them to do that. He's going to make it plain to them and to everyone how worthless their worship is. Then the Lord goes on to say that not only will the priests be cursed, but their offspring. You remember that the priesthood is passed through the blood. So he's saying if you don't get your act together, not only will you be cursed, but your sons and your grandsons will have to deal with the consequences of your sins. And then the Lord goes on to talk about the covenant that he made with Levi. Now, if you scour the pages of Scripture you'll find all sorts of explicit covenants that the Lord has chosen in His Word to keep a record of. You think about Noah, Genesis chapter 6. You think about Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. You think about Moses, Exodus chapter 19. You think about the covenant with David. They're all over the place. But if you study and you look for this covenant that God made with Levi, you won't find it anywhere on the pages of Scripture. You won't find it anywhere in your Bible. I don't think that should bother us. The Lord in His providence didn't 
keep a record of every last word that he ever spoke to any person ever. If he did, this wouldn't be a single book. It would be, uh, I mean, the world couldn't contain all the books if you kept a record of that. But he does still tell us about it. The Lord in his providence tells us here in the book of Malachi that at one point in time, he did make a covenant with Levi. Talking about this text this week, Grant Miller called this the whisper of the covenant, the evidence that it existed. And I think that's true. So who was Levi? Well, Levi was the great-grandson of Abraham, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We talked about that earlier. And just like the rest of us, Levi was a sinner, a great sinner, in fact. So great was his sin at certain points in his life that his father, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, pronounced a curse on him on his deathbed for the violence that he had committed. You can read about that for yourselves in Genesis 49. But as Richard Gaffin has said of Levi, men may make manure of their lives, but the Lord can use it as fertilizer. Although Levi sinned greatly, he must have also been a man of tremendous repentance. Verse 5 says that Levi feared the Lord, that Levi stood in awe of his name. Although at certain points in his life, he was marked by and characterized by violence, not peace, not uprightness. Verse 6 tells us that at a certain point, he, quote, turned away from iniquity. He heard the word of the Lord. He took it into his heart. He repented of his sin and turned away from it. And God holds up this example of repentance to the priests of Malachi's day. And he says, you need to do the same thing. In today's text, you see a very clear contrast between Levi and the kind of priest that he was before God and the priests of Malachi's day. Levi feared the Lord, verse 5. The priest did not, chapter 1, verse 6. True instruction was found in Levi's mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. His instruction turned many from iniquity, we read in verse 6. But the priests were causing many to stumble by their words and their instruction, verse 8. Levi walked with the Lord in peace and uprightness, verse 6. The priests did not keep the ways of God, verse 9. Levi stood in awe of the Lord's name. And as we've seen time and time again, the priests despised his name. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Levi was faithful to his covenant, but the priests were not. Finally, we see in verse 9 that the priests were carrying out injustice in the land. One of the roles of the priests was to work with the judges in the land. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 19. The judges, as they were rendering judgments in the land, usually based around ceremonial and civil law, they consulted with the priests. The priests were like the subject matter experts on the matters of the law, and they would tell the judge, actually, I think you should do this or that because this is how you should interpret the law. And in verse 9, we read that the priests were showing partiality in their judgment. They were not bringing justice in the land. Justice is to render appropriate judgment without undue partiality. And so that's what's going on in today's text. That's all of it. Now, last week, we kind of did the same thing. We walked through the text just to make sure we understood everything that was going on. <clears throat> and then we asked the question, what does any of this have to do with us? Right? We were talking about unclean sacrifices and 
we said, we don't offer sacrifices anymore. There's no longer a temple. What does this have to do with us? And we did a biblical theology. We kind of went from Genesis all the way up until our present day, and we traced this theme of sacrifice throughout the whole Bible. And we saw that, as a matter of fact, there is sacrifice. We, we are living sacrifices. And we need to make sure that our lives are not worthless, but worthy worship to the Lord. Well, the same question may be asked today. What does any of this stuff have to do with me, Sean? I'm, I work down at the plant. I'm not a priest. I don't offer up sacrifices. I hope God doesn't wipe dung on my face. And here again, I think a biblical theology will help us. But first, you have to understand what a priest does. You have to understand the role of a priest. Here's, here it is in kind of one sentence. A priest brings the people near to God's presence and God near to the people. A priest brings the people near to God's presence and God near to the people. Okay. Now what you need to understand about the priesthood of the Old Covenant is that it was both individual and corporate. Corporately, what I mean is that all of Israel... All 12 tribes, all thousands and thousands of people came together and formed one corporate body. And as one corporate body, these priests were meant to fulfill the role of a priest. I mean, these people were meant to fulfill the role of a priest. You read about it in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. The Lord says, Now therefore, if you, Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As an entire nation, the people of Israel were meant to be holy. So holy, in fact, that they drew the gaze of all the unbelieving nations around them. Moth and a flame kind of thing. If you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that Israel failed miserably in this way. You can see that plainly in today's text. But there were also individual priests. Men who were called to a very particular office, which we've already discussed. They also failed in their calling. So Israel, corporately and individually, failed in their calling to be priests. And it's not just the priests of Malachi's day. If you trace the story of priests throughout the whole Old, Old Testament, you'll find all sorts of sins and ways that they fell short. They failed to observe the Sabbath. They stole meat. They accepted bribes. They allowed worthless sacrifices. They failed to teach. They failed to shepherd. They even murdered. And these, this is not a comprehensive list. And the Lord was not oblivious to this corruption. It didn't, it didn't catch him off guard. It's not as if the Lord didn't understand the fact that sinful man, heart corrupted by a fallen nature could ever be perfectly holy, as holy as they needed to be to carry out their job. The Lord knew that that wasn't possible. And at one point in time in the story, He even promises to reform the priesthood. Fully, finally, to fix everything. No more corruption. And this is what He says. I will raise up for Myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in My heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and there he will minister before my anointed one always. 
one day that priest came. And his name was Jesus. He was the perfect high priest. He was perfectly holy. He was perfectly righteous. On his lips was nothing but truth. His words led people into life and into goodness and into beauty and away from evil and away from death and corruption. All the judgments that he rendered were perfectly just. Unfortunately, when he came, the priests that were still alive, they hated him. They stirred up the crowd to have Barabbas released instead of him. They stirred up the crowd and shouted along with them, Crucify him! The priests hated him because he was everything that they weren't. And more than that, he was everything that they knew that they were supposed to be but weren't. And so they hated him for it. He was pure, holy, righteous, loving, humble. And so they killed him. Thankfully, the promise that God gave of his forever priest could not be undone, not even by death, not even by the rulers of the day. And so God the Father raised this Jesus. He raised this priest who's greater than Melchizedek, greater than Levi, greater than Aaron, the, great, the greatest priest who's ever lived. He raised him up to serve in his forever temple. And now he stands ever making intercession before the Father, bridging the gap between an infinitely holy God and an infinitely sinful people like us. And the Gospel says that anyone who would repent and turn away from their sins, who would listen to these words and not merely hear them, but take them into their heart, that person, Christ is standing in the gap for them. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that you need somebody. You need a mediator to fill that gap for you. If you worked as hard as you could every day for the rest of your life to be as good and as holy and as righteous as you need to be to fill the moral gap between you and God, you would never, ever, ever get there. But Jesus fills that gap for you. And he stands ready at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for your sins. For us as believers, in light of this permanent priesthood of Christ, there no longer remains a need for a priesthood. Just like last week we saw there no longer need, remains a need for a temple because there no longer needs to be a sacrifice because not only is Christ the perfect high priest, he's also the perfect sacrifice. So today there is no need for a priesthood, regardless of what your Roman Catholic friends may tell you. Individually, we are all, every single one of us, priests of our God. This is called the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. It means that we don't need a man to stand up between us and God in worship. This is one of the doctrines of the Reformation that turned the Roman Catholic Church over on its head. We can approach God with full assurance and confidence because of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, Pay attention to this next part because this is where the application really comes in heavy for us today. <clears throat> Just like the old covenant priesthood had an individual and corporate aspect, so does the new covenant. Just as we are individually priests before God, so also we, when we come together as a church, 
we as the church are meant to function as a priest to the nations. This is how 1 Peter says it. And we read it, brothers and sisters, before every members meeting, which is tonight at 5 o'clock p.m. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking about the church. You, church, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. As a church, we are meant to be a priest that takes the presence of God to the lost peoples of the world. That's our job. That's our main job, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. That is the mission of the church. Every other good thing that we do as part of obedience as a church serves that main purpose. Instead of staying in the temple, offering up sacrifices daily as the priests of old used to do, we go out to the nations telling them of the final sacrifice that has been offered by Jesus Christ for their sake. We tell them that Jesus is the final, ultimate, and perfect sacrifice made to fix the sin problem that separates them from a holy and righteous God. And it is our job as a church to proclaim the excellency and sufficiency of that sacrifice. Verse 7 says that the priest should guard knowledge. It says that the people should seek instruction from their mouths because they are the messengers of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, that is now what we as a church are all about. We guard wisdom and knowledge. We are the keepers of the knowledge of salvation. We, as one body, are the messengers of the Lord. We are the mouthpiece of God. When God speaks on the earth, He speaks through the church, as it faithfully proclaims by the power of His Spirit the meaning of the Word. But as so often the case in a fallen world, we, the church, God's royal priesthood, we fail to carry out our God-given mission. And if we do carry it out, we often just go through the motions. And then we end up becoming corrupt like the priests of Malachi's day. Like the priests, we all too often fall into disobedience, moral compromise, turning from the way of our master. Like the priests, we lead people astray with words that more reflect our culture than God's law or God's gospel. Like the priests in verse 9, we may fail to do justice in the land by treating people with undue partiality, rich, poor, black, white, young, old. The church has a sordid history of doing injustices in the land when it should not have been so. We render judgments that are not in line with God's righteous standards, both inside the church and out in society. The church was designed to be the vehicle through which God displays His manifold wisdom on the earth. The church is meant to be the channel through which God pours out His love to all the lost peoples of the earth. The church is meant to be the beacon of light shining into a world that has been darkened by sin. 
The church is called to be an example of a just kingdom in a world that is plagued by injustices. The church is meant to be a walking, talking, living, breathing display of the glory of the invisible God. And when we aren't that, when we act more like the world than like Jesus, when we give in to the ways of this world rather than overcoming the ways of this world, when we despise the name of our God with worthless worship, we not only bring a curse on ourselves, but we also hurt people. We hurt people temporally, like right here, right now, and we hurt them eternally. In verse 8, we see that the priests cause the people to stumble with their false instruction. And we, the church, in the, in the words of Jesus, we can do the same thing. He warns us about this. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, and he, well, he's not talking about children. He's talking about his disciples. He says, it would be better for you to be cast into the sea with a millstone around your neck. It's a dangerous thing. Doctrinally, we lead people astray when we preach false gospels or incomplete gospels. When we preach a watered-down gospel, a legalistic gospel, an antinomian gospel, that just means a gospel that doesn't require repentance. When we preach a social justice gospel, or when we preach a no-justice gospel, when we preach a prosperity gospel, or a syncretistic gospel, or a therapeutic gospel, or a social club gospel, we lead people astray. We cause them to stumble. We cause people to stumble when we lock arms with other churches that are perpetuating false gospels. We harm others by tolerating, covering up for, making excuses for, or ignoring sin and abuse in the life of the church. Last week we saw the Lord said, does not one of you priests have the ability to stand up and shut the doors of the temple? This goes for our leaders as well as our church members. This refers to our respectable sins, gluttony, gossip, as well as our major sins. This refers to how we live individually, that is the church scattered when we go out into the world as individuals when we leave here today, and the church gathered when we come together. Failing to be a holy priesthood hurts both believers and unbelievers alike. I know so many unbelievers who walk around carrying scars on their body that they received from the church. From the people who were supposed to be leading them into the presence of God. All they led them into was a lie that hurt them and hurt them bad. And now the very people that they should go to for hope and salvation, they're afraid to go within a million miles of. Many professing believers walk away from the faith altogether for these reasons. We harm non-Christians in this way because we lie to them. We lie to them with our words and we lie to them with our actions. We lie to them about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ to save our souls and what he requires of us in return. If this is true, doesn't it make perfect sense that the Lord would despise such a priesthood? 
who's doing so much damage to the glory of his name and to the souls of his people and to the souls of the people who need him? Shouldn't such a people be covered with dung? Isn't it only appropriate? Here in today's text in verse 4, we see the reason why the Lord is willing to utterly ravage the priesthood. Look there, verse 4, he says, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So that my covenant may stand. You remember the pocket-sized definition we have of covenant. It's a relationship grounded in a promise. The Lord says that this relationship, this promise-based relationship that he has with Levi, it's going to continue. It's unbreakable. And because of that, the Lord has no problem wiping out a generation or two of priests. Wiping out the priests will allow the covenant to continue, not inhibit it. It may seem unloving to you for God to do what he's doing to these priests. But remember, God is first and foremost committed to himself and to his covenant faithfulness. Think about the Israelites traveling through the desert, how they were unfaithful to their covenant. And so the Lord wiped out an entire generation of Israelites, not to curse the covenant, not to stop the covenant, but to purify the people so that the covenant could continue. Think about the Israelites being sent off into exile for 70 years. A couple of generations of Israelites disposed of. Not to inhibit the covenant, but so that the covenant could continue in faithfulness. The Lord is willing and able to cleanse His church today, brothers and sisters. To maintain His covenant to maintain the purity of his promises. He will remove pastors from pulpits. He will remove unfaithful members from the church, sometimes by death, according to 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts chapter 5. Most importantly and most terrifyingly, He will kill churches. In Revelation 2, the Lord is speaking to the church. The church, not the bishops, not the individual members, the church, the covenanted body in Ephesus. And he says this, he says, repent. Listen to what I'm telling you. Take it to heart and apply it to your life. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Nobody thinks that their church is going to be the church. What if it is? This sermon might be a good time for us, members of Sixth Avenue to examine our life and doctrine. There's 50 things wrong with this church. I'm talking about the things that matter eternally. This is a good time for us as God's royal priests to examine ourselves and to see if we need to repent. 
This church is 100 years old this year. Will we make it another 100? In verse 2, the Lord tells the priest to listen to his voice and to take his word to heart. And I think he's telling us the same thing. We must, as God's royal priesthood, heed his warnings, stay glued to the way of righteousness, guard the gospel, the words of instruction that have been given to us, adorn the gospel with righteous living of every kind, and stay faithful to our covenant with God so that we might need, lead the nations to glorify his name. Father, we pray that your spirit would do what you have promised that it would do, lead us into all truth. Amen.